Well, good evening, and, uh, and thank you for being part of tonight's audience. Um, I've taken it upon myself to be the person who interviews my wonderful colleagues here. Um, so I'm going to ask them a few questions, and then quite rapidly we're thinking of uh, opening it up to, to all of you. Hence my desire to have you, have you close so we can see you too. So, um, good evening. Hello. <laughs> good evening. Hello. Um, I think after we've we rehearsed this in the studio for five weeks, we've been in the theatre until Saturday night when we opened for for another two. So, really, seven weeks uh, we've been working intensely in the rehearsals of this. But of course. Tansy and Nick began this a uh, lot longer ago than, uh, than that. Um, so I would love to ask them to throw their minds way back to uh, the start of this process, really. And I do know a little bit about the start of this process, but uh, they were very much by themselves without me for a very long time, which was very, very good for the project. And uh, also the way I believe it should be. I... Um, I don't think directors being there at the start of all of that is a good idea. We want to be thrown something unbelievably difficult to handle and not to be trying to shape it and possibly reduce it uh, before that moment. So really, I know that this began not as uh, the piece that you see now, but actually with a very different idea in its heart. So that's what I'd love you to talk about. So shall I ask Nick to run with that. All right, I'll start. I mean, it's very difficult to know where something really starts. Um, but I suppose it started on the day that this terrible thing happened. Um, you know, we were all changed by it. And, um, you know, a few things happened on that day to me, which uh, were important and made me continue to think about it over time. But um, the next step of it, as it were, was when I worked with um, Philippe Petit, who's a high-wire walker, who put a high-wire between the Twin Towers in 1974. It was what he called a coup, and it was really a completely illegal act of miraculous art beauty. So this group of young guys and women uh, broke into the towers, and they figured out how to put a wire between the towers at night, 60 metres, 1,300 feet up in the air, and then Philippe walked on it for... 40 minutes, and he didn't just walk on it, he ran on the wire, he sat down on the wire, he lay down on the wire, he saluted the sun on the wire. And if you're anything like me, the idea of that is just sickeningly terrifying. But interestingly, the photographs of him show a man demented with intention until the moment he steps on that wire, 1,300 feet in the air, with no safety harness at all, and he looks ecstatic. And so I worked with him on a play about that, and I felt that uh, we got some way towards the you know, the heart of the subject, but not all the way. And um, I felt that maybe this could be an opera, and, uh, because an opera can go with music beyond, beyond the threshold of words. Words can take it to a threshold, and then the music can gather it and magnify it further. And with that sort of germ of an idea, I met T Tansy, and we began to talk. Not entirely sure that this was going to be um, what we thought of as a modern opera, but, you know, very interested. Enough to go and see Philippe Petit in New York, all the way to New York, had lunch with him. He said, oh, this is a fantastic idea, but unfortunately, I've sold all my rights to Disney. So I can't do it. So we had a great lunch, and then we came all the way home again. And, um, and we thought about it some more, and we talked about what, what, what we thought a contemporary opera 
what kind of thing it could be, what kind of beast it should be, and how the words and the drama and the poetry and the music could be as one. Um, so we did talk about this for quite a long time, but there was a really changing moment, and as is the way with these things, it happened in the Arctic, where I happened to be on a boat with Deborah. And I was telling her about this project, and she said, well, let's talk about this when we get back, because that sounds very interesting. So the three of us went for um, a drink, and Deborah very memorably said, if you wanted to tell a story about the beginning of the towers, you cannot tell a story like that without being in relation to what happened to the towers at the end. At which point we sucked our vodka and tonics at full velocity <laughs> up our straws and thought, well, how on earth can we do that? How is it possible to take on a subject of such terrifying immensity and such contemporary um, daunting power? And then I think Tansy would say, step by step, we began to think maybe we could. Maybe an opera of all the art forms, maybe an opera is a way to try and hold this story within drama and music. And uh, little by little, we began to think that actually it was the only subject, really, that we felt was great enough for a, for a new opera. And I think at this point I'm going to hand over to Tansy. Okay. So... It was interesting, though, because we always felt that there was, there was always going to be um, um, something remaining um, of Philippe's walk. And it was, um, it was all about something that, was, that words c couldn't express, something about doing something beautiful and um, terrifying, and um, about wires between these towers... There was always this thing about long lines and connections. And um, so that element just sort of sat there in the back of our minds and we tried to sort of bring all the, all the thoughts together that were developing. And it, the whole thing happened very gradually and, and slowly, but very, also very deeply. We felt that we were, I think we all felt that we were, you know, on a good, a good track to somewhere, even though we perhaps doubted ourselves at the times and thought, my goodness, this is a terrifying subject. At the same time, because of that, we felt we had to go forward. And I, felt, I think there was a great faith between the three of us, actually, that we, we had something important to do. So this element of the shadow of Philippe's walk um, gave me a wonderful um, starting point for something completely unsayable in words, which was the music, which was about great heights and great depths. Um, and I, I believe that opera really needs to be completely um, sort of powered by the music. Um, and the narratives can, can be woven into the, the, you know, a tapestry, which is how I would describe this piece. It's a, a real tapestry. Um, and the narratives can kind of ride the waves of this, this very rich tapestry, and kind of also a kind of deep ocean is how I, how I talk about the orchestra, how I think of it, which is why I say riding the waves of it. But um, this, this great height, which is also, you know, something which is very obvious with the cityscape, with New York, with the towers, was something tremendously um, visceral for me. Um, musically, to try and create that image in music, and reflecting that the immensity of that height um, downwards as well, and to try and cover that space in music, to carve out that space for the opera, and to go into realms which are, are about connecting with 
each other across the cosmos, um, connecting on a spiritual level and also connecting on an earthly level. So for two people who said they never wanted to give an interview again, which they did to me at the side of the stage, they've done very well. Actually, um, just talk to us a little bit about uh, about WikiLeaks, which which you have mentioned was the start of your yeah we um, thinking. Actually, just to go back a little bit, we 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 did talk for a couple of years, but comes a day where you have to get going on these things, and we mm. went away to Tansy's house in France, and we decided to draw a picture of the whole opera to draw it together, and so we bought two big rolls of brown paper from the supermarket and a bunch of marker pens and we joined them up and we had a piece of paper about 25 foot long and over a week together we drew the whole opera and we put down the musical ideas, the dramatic ideas, the poetic ideas and um, I guess the spiritual ideas as well and uh, because we had a, a drawing we worked out the structure as we went along and we had a, a map in the end of it which was something that we we felt um, really held everything that we wanted to do in a picture, which was much easier to, and much more important than trying to write a, an account in any way. And we could show it to people, such as Deborah, for example, and she could say, oh, I, I see, I so see what you mean. what you mean is that you didn't write the libretto and then hand it over to Tanzania. That's what that I meant. That. That's exactly <laughs> what I meant to say. Yes, I went the long way around. So we talked about... Um, this old way of doing things, which was the librettist writes the libretto and then he posts it to the composer and she sets it. And we thought that was not very uh, inspiring as a way for us to work. We wanted to try and make the whole thing as one. And, More um, frightening for Tansy. Mm -hmm. Yes. But she likes that. <laughs> I'm great. Yeah, she loves that. So. Anyway, you know, uh, so we did that and, uh, and then we really did actually have to separate a bit and I had to go and try and write the libretto, at which point... Uh, you begin to think, well, what are the words? Where are the words for this? What is the story? Who are these people? What are the words? And my first, um, my first real clue were all the pager messages which were released by WikiLeaks, uh, half a million of them. And they're like an archaeology of what happened on that day uh, because they start in, before dawn with very, very simple things. Sometimes they're mechanical messages from computer to computer. Sometimes they're just very standard code messages from the fire service to the police service or whatever. And there are people just saying really, really ordinary, daily moments of dearness to each other, which we all take for granted. So, you know, we'd say, uh, I'll see you later. What do you want for dinner? Things like that. It was very, very domestic and simple. And then at 8.46 a.m., a shockwave passes through these messages and they transmute. They become something else completely. They become about fear and about uncertainty and about a desperate need to know what is going on because, for the most part, people in the towers had no idea what had happened. So they desperately needed to reach out to people outside, to their families and their loved ones, to try and find out what was going on. And then another shockwave passes through because the second plane hits and people start to understand what's going on. And the energy that then travels through these messages is absolutely terrifying, but it's also intensely moving because these become last words. The thing that most moved us, I think, were that the evidence of this is that people in extremis, more than anything, needed to speak to their loved ones, and more than anything, they needed to make things right, and they needed to say three really simple words, which is, I love you, in many different variations, but essentially, that's what they needed to say, which I found um, you know, profoundly moving. 
And I think anyone who's um, experienced loss will understand that that is where we come to in the end. That's what we need. That's the message that we need to to leave. Um, and so I found that um, I found the simplicity of the language and the intensity and the necessity of it uh, had a kind of ele- elemental poetry to it, which I think helped me to understand what the kind of language this should be. So not poetic, not people having long arias about how they were feeling. There was no time for that. It was something much more intense and necessary and driven. Um, and the other, the other thing that I found to sort of collide with that was the Requiem Mass, which is you know, an ancient uh, human form of uh, grief and rage and suffering and sorrow and at some point a kind of human consolation. And I wanted to be able to collide those two languages, a very contemporary language, a very simple one, with these very ancient words, the most ancient that I could find, that were sufficient somehow to sort of send up uh, to people who were in such terrible uh, extremists. Should we open it quickly to an audience? Because we've, we've talked to ourselves quite a lot. So it mm. might be very nice to talk to you. Yeah. Do we have a microphone? I think that would be... <laughs> Hi. Uh... Hi, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, we can. I wanted to ask you about the characterizations of the people that you identified and whether, in fact, these were entirely fictitious or whether in going through all trawling through the many, many emails that you must have read, you found a common link that there was a mother, there was somebody who Mm. was betraying their wife, there was another character who just was terrified. And Mm. this seemed to be a wonderful way of showing all the different facets of life for me. And I didn't know whether it was a common theme that you found or whether there were real people or you, you just imagined that these characters yeah. had been there? Well, we both had to immerse ourselves in everything that we could find about, oh. about this day and what happened to people on this day as far as is known. Um, but what I felt and found was that the, the relationships between people eventually came down to uh, you know, the things that we all know about, universal things, mothers and sons, husbands and wives, lovers, parents and children. And I felt that um, I didn't want to appropriate anybody's personal life. I felt that would be kind of morally weird, wrong. But what I felt I could do was to build a set of characters out of universal, recognizable people. And, um, and then, of course, I had to invent and take responsibility for the choices that I made. And so, for example, on a, on a radio program, I was asked, this, you've got a lesbian character in this story. Why? And it absolutely staggered me that anybody could ask that because lesbian and gay people died in the towers along with everybody else. So what we really wanted to do was to try and embrace the absolute diversity of people who were affected and who survived and many of whom died. So it was very important to me to find something that was really um, as universal as it could be whilst also having enough specificity so that when you, the audience, watch them you, you connect with them and you care about them. And so, I think yeah. we did. Good. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad. 
talk to us a little bit about, there's, there's, there's a great amount of material, of course, in the world which Nick will speak about. I mean, there are many other projects that have been, that have been created on, on, on the back of this terrible, terrible story. Um, there is one particular documentary called um, Calls from the Towers, mm -hmm. which some of you may be familiar with, where there's very particular stories of that day. Would you just tell us a little bit about that. Oh, it's the most—it's the most moving and wonderful uh, documentary. If anyone's seen it, um, uh, people speak with an unbelievable eloquence and emotional clarity about uh, the day they lost their loved one. And very often, what happened was they found a message, and um, that message then meant everything to them. Uh, occasionally, people were able to speak to their loved ones, and. Um, uh, there, is an, there is an element in the opera where um, the sister begs the brother because she can no longer think of any words that are adequate to sing with him. And that did happen to a family under different circumstances. And there was a security guard who was high up on one of the floors and he did sing to people as they were going down. So I was very moved by that, the idea that, pe that people turn to music in their, in their absolute need. Um, but it would be true to say that there is a, there's a mother in that documentary who um, I don't think I've ever seen anything more um, profoundly moving because she talks about the message that she has from her son and she talks about how she felt when she was told that uh, the tower had fallen, that he had died, and she said uh, that she screamed with an animal sound and she knew at that moment that she and her family had joined uh, the sorrow and the agony of the grief of all the ages. And I thought that was the most beautiful, upsetting, remarkable thing I can imagine someone saying who had been so bereft of someone they loved so much. And that became uh, a crucial part of what we felt we were trying to do. We were trying to join um, the contemporary grief of what happened to the ancient grief which is an ancient human story and she, like the mother at the foot of the cross she really bore that weight and I, I was profoundly moved by that Is that where the shamanic connection comes in? The, the question is is that where the shamanic connection comes in and perhaps for you In connection with the mother well, the shaman is connected with, with many, with the whole thing, really. Um, but crucially, yes, he, he facilitates um, a message um, between, that is left for the mother by her son. And um, what happens is in the opera is he doesn't actually have the courage to leave a message, but the shaman makes a message exists so that she receives one that was never physically actually made. And talk to us a little bit about the shaman. So the shaman is, is a number of things. Um, I've, I've been interested in, in shamans for, for many years, actually. My, the first piece I wrote about shamans was in 2000, 2004, so that's quite a long time ago. But um, I was aware that Nick was also sort of slightly interested in them, and the idea of of looking into a kind of medicine healing or spiritual healing um, came up gradually um, in relation to this, um, this, um, this idea which we wanted to 
to um, keep of Philippe, you see. And he's a kind of shamanic spirit in my mind, someone who does something sort of unbelievable and very beautiful and for the sake of a strange kind of healing. Um, so that's where the shaman initially came from. Um, I like the figure of a shaman because um, in the tradition of which I know a little bit about, there's a lot of music. They play lots of instruments, they have rattles, and it's lots, lots of singing and whistling. And um, for me, that was just a gift, really. Um, so I like the fact that um, what shamans do is they walk between worlds. They are, they are able to um, move between levels of consciousness and connect the living and the dead. Now, our shaman, uh, as you see from the very start, is up there in the void. He's kind of in the cosmos. He's not among the people. Um, but it could be that he is, is just very much connected to the janitor. And, and you know, he could be his, his alter ego, so that the janitor is also part shaman. But that's um, an ambiguous um, thing which you can decide for yourself on. Um, in any case, he connects with the shaman, with the janitor, um, part, partly through um, the Spanish prayer, which um, comes from something we found in, in a whole collection of um, shamanic practices to do with um, a Peruvian healer called Eduardo the Healer. And um, through that, he initiates these um, messages that were never actually sent, but reach their loved ones, and, the, and at the point at which they can just reach across the cosmos, across time and space, to each other. Um, that's that's his, his role as a, a bridge maker. You would have liked surtitles. Yes, mm. uh, surtitles, so we could have changed yeah. what was being would have been helpful. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm sorry. Actually, I would like to say I particularly like the fact that there weren't. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's a very difficult... Yeah. And do you wear a hearing aid, madam? No, I, no, I do. No. <laughs> mm. Well, it's, uh, it's, it slightly lays at my feet the responsibility for no surtitles in, in some part. I mean, I, I have, I'm very well aware of uh, how fierce this, uh, this debate is. Um, and I think probably we should have had one performance here when we did have them. But this being as new a piece as it is, I'm afraid by the time we realised that, we didn't know where to put them. So apologies to you. Thank you. Um, it is true that I have worked quite hard during my time at the Yano not to have them when the work was sung in English. And it began with a... In fact, it began with a turn of the screw that I did for the Royal Opera House, and we did it here, and we did it without titles, and nobody, nobody wrote to say they minded. And then, rightly, a lot of public money was put into the Royal Opera House, and from that point on, it was indeed the case that they have surtitles for everything. So we know this is an enormous question. Um, I think with this, you have all listened more tonight than you would have were they, were they there. So, you know, this is, it's, a, it's, a, it's, it's a very difficult subject. So um, I apologise that we haven't done one with but I absolutely stand by not having them there all the time. 
I think the diction is, is staggeringly good. Yeah, yes. I'll, I'll tell them. Could you hear a bit more about the challenge for you in putting this into a sort of dramatic content? Mm. Also, perhaps could I also ask whether there was any accidental or deliberate con connection with the written war? All right. Well, um, well, that's two questions, really. I, I think the... Is there any connection between this and the Britain War Requiem? I think there is a massive connection between this and Requiem, Requiems and uh, Oratorios. And I think, to some degree, um, actually scenically what you're looking at is probably rather inspired by that. I mean, I've, I've worked on a, a staging of, of, of Messiah and I've worked on a St. John Passion. And to some degree... Those were starting points for me because I was very well aware that this piece needed some kind of formality. Um, and um, when you're releasing those works, oratorios, you release them really through formality if you are to, to find a way of staging, and that's probably, that's probably the portal. Um, in it, there is the Requiem Mass, and... Um, so, that, yes, there's a connection of a kind there. Um, in answer to your question, what were the difficulties? There was an absolutely no difficulty, but actually huge pleasure being in a studio rehearsal for five weeks working with the really wonderful, wonderful group um, of, of singer-performers that I've got. And um, we quite quickly, I think, got to the heart of something that felt to be very, very, very near the centre of the piece and had a great, great simplicity. Um, I mean, there were days early on when I was perhaps pulling people back from, from a performance that was in any way uh, untrue to who they were essentially as a person. I mean, to some degree, I think you see our protagonists up above and you probably, if you met them this evening, might recognise them. I mean, they're, they're drawing very strongly on... On, uh, on themselves in the performance, so too, so too the chorus. The difficulty came, and it was an enormous surprise to me um, when we moved in here. And uh, because I'd worked with Michael Levine, our designer, for a long time and absolutely was aware of the environment we were playing in and the, and the set we had. But suddenly being in control as one is when one moves into an opera house or a, or a theatre, having the very um, necessary and very important tools of light and video, in this case, um, it suddenly became a crisis. We, we only had two weeks in here. It was very, very quick work. And the crisis was that myself and, and my fantastic team really got lost because we suddenly thought we were glamorizing this very, very simple and very innocent uh, creature that had emerged from the rehearsal room. So we, as creatures in panic do, we put a lot of things there and then we took it all away and then we realized a bit later that we could actually put some of it back. So I, I think the, the walking through fire that was my part of this story actually happened very, very recently, and we were lighting, which is very unusual in opera, until five o'clock on the day we opened, which was Saturday. <laughs> and, uh, and we changed the entire first 20 minutes of the show, not in terms of what the performers were doing. That was immensely set and ready from very early on in the process. But we changed every piece of that environment, so the video that you see at the beginning, the narrative tools of seeing the city, etc. So... Um, 
yeah, it wasn't it wasn't easy, but it was terribly easy to get to what these two had uh, had 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 produced. Um, I mean, what they haven't spoken about very long is this this uh, this great wallpaper roll Nick Nick describes that both of them drew, which is a very beautiful object, but like the Bayo tapestry, really, it. Um, it, it allowed this very unusual way of working that Nick was not sending in great chunks of the libretto or very small chunks of the libretto. So at a certain point, really about midway, scene six, seven, he was producing the next scene just in advance of Tansy having completed the previous. And this was possible because Tansy knew exactly where it was going. She didn't know exactly the words that she was going to be given, but she knew exactly the structure of the of the eleven scenes, and the mark of how real that is is what I received really the experience of going into a rehearsal room. It was so strong and robust, and rehearsal is a merciless environment where where any weakness is 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 revealed within seconds if you're rehearsing properly. And uh, structurally, it's a very, very fantastic achievement, I think, for what is a first opera from, from both of them. Hello. Hi. Um, I have a question for you. Um, as it's your first opera, mm-hmm. I was just wondering if there's anything in the canon or outside of the canon that was particularly important to you or that you found was influencing you as you were composing? Um, I don't think so. No, this was a really lonely experience and it really had to be. Um, it was very strange. I think I, when I was... Because there were long stretches of time where I, I was actually waiting for libretto. And uh, <laughs> I thought, what shall I do? And... Um, and so I... I went to the gym. <laughs> <laughs> Occasionally. Um, so I, I just sort of... I went... My instinct took over, and I got... I just started sort of pattern-making. And I made these long swathes of, of um, what I call the fabric of the cosmos music, which you hear in the strings. It's this, this kind of endless... Um, it's actually slow-moving cycles going at different speeds throughout the strings, and it's just going... It's, it's ever-changing, but at the same time, very consistent. And that took me a long time. And I, for some time, I was thinking, gosh, what am I doing here? I'm spending ages on this. I've got to write an opera. What am I doing with this thing? There's not even any words. But um, it proved to be really, really useful um, as, as a wonderful backdrop for words as well because the, it made the, um, the text, I think, pretty much pretty clear. Um, so, yeah, there weren't really any pieces I had in mind. I just had to go really deep and be on my own for a very long time. And towards the end, it was a very, very intense experience. Um, I didn't see anyone for three months, and I wrote 20 minutes of music, the last 20 minutes, and I was sleeping three hours a night or something. And it was just through that um, endurance test, in a way, that I felt I, I, you know, pushed through and I really found the, the ending. You, sir. Just behind this lady, you wanted to. <coughs> he thought he did. Perhaps he doesn't. Um, <coughs> it's on, yeah. <coughs> Just uh, reading the notes there, Tansy, that you wrote about finding light uh, through darkness and 
there's something shamanic, I think, about the, your role in creating this, that it's not simply an artistic undertaking, that my sense is that it's something that is seeking to heal, that there's a larger purpose here. And perhaps in the three months by yourself at the end, did you need to internalize the darkness and transform that within yourself? Is that a part of, of yeah, what happened to absolutely. you? Yeah, absolutely. But that, that, that was through the whole process. Actually, I would say two years, I was in a very strange place. But it, so I was transformed through it. And I hoped that the healing I was getting from working would radiate outwards. There's a lady in the middle there. Oh, sorry. sorry. Next one. Hello. She's got ahead of you. Do we have any plans to take this to New York? Um, I think we would love to take this to New York. I think that New York is, is struggling with the material. Um, and uh, hopefully somebody will uh, be brave enough. But I, I think that is... Uh, so we may go somewhere else in America first, that it is a place that we would like to take it. Um, my question is about the chorus. So I really, really love the chorus. It felt like a hundred individual voices mm. all singing at once, as a crowd would be. Mm. And I was wondering if it's an existing chorus or you just cast... Um, soloists and made a chorus out of that? Um, well, it's a, it's a chorus of 26, as you've just seen, um, and it's a, it's a very unusual structure because um, 12 of those are permanent members of the English National Opera Chorus, which is a spectacularly good chorus, full of individuals, and very strongly so. Um, and then we've done something very unusual, which is that we've invited and brought in 14 soloists from outside who joined that, seven of whom, as you've seen, take solo roles, so the babysitter, the, um, the two firemen, the security man, the, the lover, the wife. Um, and, uh, and then the seven of the others cover those. So um, the, the 14, as we call them, which sounds like some kind of arts movement in Vienna, <laughs> became um, very central in the creation of this piece. Because the reason we needed to do that is that, as lots of you will know here, but in opera, the amount of time available with a chorus is spectacularly limited. And um, spectacular when you have it, but indeed limited to a sessions a week or three sessions so it was terribly important to me that I had this 14 to really invent and honestly build the structure for the evening with so I'm terribly grateful to them 